We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The dignity of humanity. Some people have a great deal of money, more money than we can even think about. And a lot of people have much, much less. Does this matter Do people care about this increased wage gap? In America, there's always been rich and poor, but what's always made us different from the aristocracies and ruling classes of old has been our large middle class, social mobility. We've always been a land of opportunity. There's been a wage gap for quite some time. Generally, it's not gotten a lot of attention as most people just seem to accept it. After all, we like rich people in America. They are the job creators, after all. But since that bygone time when there was a large middle class, the gap between the richest few and the rest of us has skyrocketed. Today, there's really not much left of something we used to take for granted called the middle class. In this light, the Institute for Policy Studies just released a report called Billionaire Bonanza, the Forbes 400 and the rest of us. It looks at not only where we are and why the extremes of wealth are a problem affecting us all, and also it looks at some solutions as to what can be done to close this horrendous gap between the few ultra-wealthy and the rest of our country. I'm very pleased to have with us back an old friend on Keeping Democracy Alive, Chuck Collins. Chuck is uh, one of the people who put this thing together. Thanks, Chuck, for being here. Good to be with you, Bert. Well, if you don't know, Chuck Collins is an author and senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., where he directs the program on inequality and the common good. He's also co-founder of Wealth for the common good. He's an expert on U.S. economic inequality and has pioneered efforts to bring together investors and business leaders to speak out publicly against corporate practices and economic policies that increase economic inequality. Collins co-founded several organizations, including Wealth for the Common Good, which in 2015 merged with Patriotic Millionaires. And there are a lot of patriotic millionaires. I must say, Collins has worked with a number of prominent wealthy individuals, including William Gates Sr. and George Soros, in an effort to promote tax equity. Collins was the co-founder of the organization United for a Fair Economy, and he's the author of 99 to 1, How Wealth Inequality is Wrecking the World and What We Can Do About It. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Chuck Collins. Tell us about reaction 
to the publication of the report, uh, Billy, what is it, uh, the Forbes 400 and the rest of us. So some of the reaction, how the study came to be. Well, we, um, we just thought we would sort of look at both the new data about the very, very wealthy and sort of what we know about everybody else and look at the juxtaposition. And uh, we periodically, I've been tracking this for, you know, 20 years plus, um, but we were even among our research team a bit stunned by just how quickly wealth seems to be concentrating at the very, very top. Um, so one of our findings was that the richest 400, the Forbes 400 people, now have uh, as much wealth as the bottom 61% of the population, which is over 190 people. So that's kind of a new breakthrough. You, you know, we all hear these statistics, these they're somewhat mind-numbing, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, you know, even among my conservative friends who say, you know, inequality is a, a great thing for a free society, it, it gives them pause. Um, and and, and um, the, another one of our findings is the richest 20 people. So the richest 20 who could fit in a Gulfstream 650 private jet, uh-huh. which has 20 seats, they have more wealth than the bottom half of the population, over 150 million people. So now we're seeing, you know, we, a couple of years ago we talked about 99 to 1 and the 1%, right. and then as sort of after the economic meltdown, we were learning that most of the income and wealth gains were going to the top one-tenth of 1% or the top one-thousandth. And our report is saying it's, it, the, you know, those inequalities are important, but we're seeing a gushing wealth uh, updraft, if you will, mm-hmm. to really the top, you know, Very, liver. very few. Very, yeah. very few. Now, the Forbes 400 uh, comes out every year, and that's, of course, the wealthiest people. And, and when this came out, there's been some interesting uh, reaction to the article, I, I believe. Tell us about that, if you would, please. I think it's been sort of overwhelmingly positive. I mean, the people have, the data is now uh, globally circulating. Uh, major stories in almost all the international media, um, right. some of our graphics. I mean, I think that what, what people are, you know, uh, it, 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 there's always been a debate about inequality and, you know, okay, you know, some people argue, well, this is a reflection of hard work, right. and virtue, right. et cetera. But, virtue. but at this point, you can sort of say, well, this is sort of like a market distortion. This is, is delinked from hmm. any kind of mythology of deservedness. It's just hmm. kind of like compounding at the top. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, with a combined worth of $2.34 trillion, and let's, I have to often remind myself of what a billion is. You know, most people think of a million dollars. That's a lot of money. One million dollars, that's a lot of money. A billion is a thousand million. And a trillion is, is, is what? A thousand billion? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. God, it, I mean, you just have to break it down that way because when you say trillion, who can even think about that? So the Forbes 400 has a combined worth of 2.34 trillion. That Again, that's from the report, that's more wealth than the bottom 61% of the country combined. 194 million people. These 400 are, more, that's more wealth than 194 million people. And again, you know, we like rich people in the United States. There's always been a, a, a wealth divide. So 
I imagine some people would say, okay, the Forbes 400 owned more than the 61%. What, what's basically wrong with that? Well, there's a couple of, there's, there's kind of a growing body of research showing that um, too much concentrated wealth at the top really does matter on a number of fronts. It, it, it slows uh, social mobility. I can kind of unpack each of these. It, it, it obviously, it actually hurts the economy when so much aggregate spending power is in so few hands as opposed to the, the middle class, which um, is, a, is a better engine of local, econo- local economic growth. The, probably the most obvious thing is what it does to our democracy. Um, you know, we, there was a report recently that half of all the political contributions to the 2016 campaign, the presidential campaign, have come from 158 families, many of whom overlap significantly with this top 400. Yeah, I'm sure. So to be a candidate, to run for national office now, means you need to have a billionaire ideally two or three on your side. Um, and, and, and one of the dynamics that we're seeing, particularly in the Republican campaign, is you have these candidates, people can't remember their names, but the reason they're still in the race is because they have a billionaire <laughs> patron who sort of pays the bills and keeps them going. Without their billionaire patron, if they had to depend on you know, the campaign contributions of ordinary people, they would be long gone. Um, so it's so the, the the concentration of wealth is having a weird effect on our not only election system but then on governance and law writing as well. You know the only exception obviously is candidate Bernie Sanders who says, "You know, I'm not taking any money from the billionaire class." Hey, you did it well. <laughs> so uh, you know he's got a million small contributions yeah. averaging thirty five bucks or something. Right, right. Um, and even people tried to set up a pack to give him money, and he's like, "Nope, I'm not going to take it." You know, so um, so he's uh, the one exception. But otherwise, our democracy is now almost incre- totally dominated. We have we are living through the wealth primary. This is the yeah. But long before anybody votes, uh, starting in Iowa in a couple months, uh, the can the field will be winnowed and and shaped by the billionaire votes. Yeah, there. I, here, where this show is produced in New Hampshire, we, you know, we we are crawling with presidential candidates from now till uh, mid February, whenever the heck the primary is. But it's like, really, our primary used to be the first in the nation. Used to be a big deal, and it still will be a big deal, but lesser because there's these, as you say, billionaire primaries. There's the Republican candidates have all basically gone crawling on their knees uh, to touch the hem of the robe of people like Sheldon Adelson. And, you know, what is that about, to have these billionaires overriding, you know, whole states? And, you know, I almost feel sorry for people like uh, Jeb Bush, who clearly has a lot of money somehow, but very little support. I mean, it's it's over, but he didn't know it. (laughs) But, I mean, what that does to the democratic system is just... It's amazing. If you just tuned in here, Bert Cohen or on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest is uh, Chuck Collins, uh, author and senior scholar at uh, Institute for Policy Studies, uh, United for a Fair Economy, is the author of 99 to 1, How Wealth Inequality is Wrecking the World and What We Can Do About That. And we, we will get that. You know, it's, I find it fascinating how 
you know, language is so important, how people are perceived. In 2012 and 2014, the Republicans routinely referred to the wealthiest class of people as job creators. But the report that that you uh, worked on, uh, uh, Chuck, says, quote, by seriously taxing our wealthiest households, we could raise significant revenues and invest these funds to expand wealth building opportunities across the country, end quote. So this notion of that, that the wealthiest are the job creators that's been sort of unquestioned by people who tend to vote Republican. So the idea of if we taxed our wealthiest households more fairly, how would that work? And what does that, does that mean the accepted picture of the extremely wealthy as a source of job creation is faulty? Well, there's a couple things going on there. One is, I think you're absolutely right, Bert, that there is this kind of image that the very, very wealthy are the engines of the train, are the job creators, are the makers. Yes. But what we do know is most job growth comes from small businesses, mostly rooted in localities, small companies and manufacturers and and, uh, service companies in a region. That's the real engine of the economy, and that is driven by the spending of the ever-shrinking metal class. So if we really want to stimulate the economy, these concentrations of wealth kind of backfire on that. And if we were to, and and I think we should go back and just say, well, you know, after World War II, 1945 to 1975, we we taxed wealth and high incomes at very much more progressive rates. Yes and invested that in things like expanding access to home ownership, debt-free college education, and building a middle class, primarily a white middle class. But that That's actually true. then had the stimulating effect of um, middle-income households, you know, expanding their consumption. Um, right. When... And, and therefore propelling the, the real economy. Right now we have this kind of unreal speculative Wall Street economy, and there's a lot of paper wealth and a lot of zeros after people's names, Mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily investing and producing anything of real value in terms of ordinary people's lives. Um, Whereas we know that a local economy that's rooted is the real economy. That's where the real action is. And long after the bubble bursts the next time around, there'll be a, a real economy, and that's where we should be focusing our efforts, strengthening that. Yeah, interesting. It, it, you know, you have to, I mean, there's the law of supply and demand. And how much can, you know, a few, say, these 20 people on that uh, jet, the name of which I don't even know what kind of jet it is, huh, but uh, how much can they really buy? How much can they, I mean, they, they buy yachts, they buy real estate, but in terms of actually creating jobs, you know, how much can they demand? Whereas, as you say, Chuck Collins, if if there is a middle class and they can buy stuff and invest in things, obviously that builds a heck of a lot more jobs. It's much, much better for the economy than just a few people buying a very few things. I mean, they get they got so many zeros after their name. They got, you know, how much can they spend? They just can't do it. And they're not going to invest that money in building jobs. They're going to buy, you know, yachts and you know, uh, penthouses in Manhattan and who knows where else. And y- just on that, Bert, yeah. you're right about the 
middle-class spending, but there's a way in which that concentration of wealth actually undermines or destabilizes the economy for the rest of us. Oh, really? So let's say the 1% has $20 trillion. That's, you know, somewhere between 20 and $25 trillion. A portion of that may be spent, you know, building a yacht. That actually does create jobs. Having a private jet, you know, that does employ people. It doesn't employ people as efficiently as other kinds of investments, but nonetheless, it's, it's a stimulus. Yeah. But the real problem is huge amounts of that wealth. You know, when these wealthy people sit down with their investment advisors, they, they say, well, we could invest in Ford Motor or, you know, the old blue chip stocks. Right. But golly, those companies aren't performing, you know, 3 4% return. You know, that, what happens is the investment advisors say, look, let's go over here through this door marked Wall Street casino economy. <laughs> let's take some of those trillions of years. And let's put it into play over here in the high-risk, high-return, kind of paper-wealth speculative economy. And so all of a sudden, you have trillions of dollars looking for high-risk, high... Well, guess what? That's what caused the economic meltdown in 2007, 2008. That uh-huh. huge driver from the top of wealthy people looking for speculative returns. So the, the predatory, you know, kind of speculative economy mm-hmm. actually is like a vampire on... The real economy, it starts to, you know, try to suck up wealth and and from the real healthy economy. And so, in a way, we have to protect ourselves, protect the main street economy from uh, from these forces. And taxing the wealthy at the top and investing in debt-free education is the kind of thing that would actually do that. Fascinating. I mean. It... I don't think people uh, think in terms of what you were just describing, Chuck. But that's you know, it's it's important to get this knowledge out there. As they say, knowledge is powerful. Uh, part of the American dream, of course, is the prospect that if you work hard and play by the rules and are creative, many of us may become wealthy. The report notes a problem with this: tax policies currently favor capital income over wage income or ordinary income. These policies disproportionately benefit the Forbes 400. Talk more about such problems with that tax policy, if you would, please. Yeah, I mean, basically, we now have a system where uh, if, if your income comes primarily from capital or from investments, you pay a right. significantly lower tax. And if you're a hedge fund manager, you've kind of rigged it so that your income is treated like capital income. Uh, so you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue that would have been collected in a, in a better, fair tax system uh, are not, you know, basically obligations are shifted onto everybody else. So this is the problem that Warren Buffett pointed out when he very publicly tried to explain, look, I, as a multi, as the second wealthiest man in the United States, hmm. pay an effective tax rate of about 14%. Jeez. My secretary pays an effective tax rate of about 24%. Mm. What's wrong with this picture? Why is she paying a higher percentage of her income in taxes, and I'm not? And the reason is because his income comes from investments, and her income comes from work. So there, there's a simple fix to that, which is you, you tax all income at the, you know, the same. You treat all income the same. Uh, if your income is low, whether it comes from investments because you're a retiree, or you're a low-wage worker, your income is taxed at a low level. If your income is over a million dollars a year, regardless of whether it comes from a paycheck or investments, it's taxed at a higher rate. That would be a much better tax system. 
Well, just a little devil's advocate here. Supposing capital gains are taxed at the same rate as ordinary income, would that not have the effect of... Uh, of uh, there wouldn't be as much incentive for investment in these things. And for our overall economic strength, don't we need such investments? Doesn't the economy kind of rely on uh, incentivizing investments in, you know, capital investments and taxing capital gains at a lesser rate? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the argument. The thing is that we kind of think of, again, the wealthy as the investors, Everybody, our investors, everybody who's a small saver who has money in a mutual fund uh, is an investor. Anybody who puts a deposit in a bank or a credit union is creating capital formation for investment. Um, why are we treating these so differently? Now, you could make an argument that maybe there's something called a long-term capital gain. If you make an investment, you keep it in there for a really long period of time, maybe that's treated differently. But what we're talking about is like very short-term gains a lot, um, and in which case that is that that's almost like a disincentive for long-term productive investment. But I would just say I don't I don't think that the the world is lacking for investment capital. There's there's all kinds of capital in search of projects. There's oh, all kinds yeah. of projects in search of capital. Yeah. And this would not be uh, uh, this wouldn't throw a blanket over that at all. Um, people would adjust their expectation of return. I think what's happened is we have this speculative market with these outlandish returns, you know, 20% returns. That, that's, you know, that's fine if people want to go over to Foxwoods or, you know, the, <laughs> the most high walled off betting ring if they want. Sure. But in terms of managing and running a real economy, uh, we need to, you know, have, have a, a, a realistic rate of return in the real economy. And that that reminds me of a very interesting uh, concern. 2008-2009, the big financial meltdown. We, the people, 99%, whatever you want to call it, the rest of us, we bailed out those guys that took those gambles. Now, how did that affect the overall economic strength of America? Well, in some ways, it it, it rewarded the wrong kinds of behavior. Um, So we, you know, the big six banks now, instead of controlling 55% of all deposits, now control like 65% of all deposits. Mm. They, they keep snapping up other banks. Uh, actually, a very in- interesting thing happened this week, though, which was the some of the, the, the big underwriter uh, risk agencies have downgraded some of the big banks because ah. they don't think that the political will exists anymore to, be, to bail them out, which mm. I think is true. That's a good thing. I think the next time around... You and me and everybody else would be like, oh, no, we're not doing that again. Yeah. Time to break these babies up. True. You know? And that, of um, course, is what Bernie Sanders is talking about. And I, I don't remember, maybe you do, I'm not sure how much, you know, the, the taxpayers who were not the big banks bailed them out, you know, shifting a whole bunch of money from, you know, the general revenues to the big banks. I mean, it, it could have been more productive use of that money. I can't help but think. Yeah, I mean, just one giant insurance company, AIG, mm-hmm. got $85 billion. Um, and I was at Fenway Park a couple weeks ago for the, the international hurling competition, you know, this kind of oh, darn, I Irish Gaelic ritual sport, and it was sponsored by AIG. And I thought, oh, wait a second here. <laughs> don't, don't I, aren't I like a major shareholder of this company? <laughs> 
as a taxpayer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And going through history a little bit, you... Uh, you referred to, uh, and I referred to, the, the 50s. You know, it was a nice nice time. The, the 50s were a time of a very strong American economy and a large middle class with great social mobility. That's how it was in the 50s. Maybe not for, okay, blacks, but for white people. I mean, let's, let's look at reality here. Didn't Eisenhower have a very high tax rate, which only affected a very small number of the super wealthy and how did that work back then? I mean, we had a wonderful economy. Yeah. Well, um, you know, President Eisenhower inherited essentially the post-World War II system. Um, the top tax rate on income, if your income was over the the equivalent of about $2 million today, you paid a very high rate, over 90%, yep. <laughs> only on that income over that very high threshold. Right. Um, again, if I could do my Bernie Sanders imitation, he would say, "You do it well." You know, under the socialist presidency of Dwight Eisenhower, the tax rates were very high. So you know, he really, um, you know, and essentially, but that was the social contract was: yes, you taxed high incomes, you taxed inheritances at substantial rates, and you invested in the things that expanded middle class opportunity. And I, I talked to a lot of students today. Um, you know, and students are feeling the brunt of these inequalities. You know, if they want to go to college, average student debt is $33,000. Mm. 40 million households now have college debt that they're paying off, including mine. Um, and when I tell them, well, you know, after World War II, uh, we had this incredible investment in debt-free education, the GI Bill and later, you know, the Pell Act and all these initiatives that, and, and states, still invested, and, and the federal government shared revenue with the states, and they, they in turn could have very low tuition at public universities. You know, I, I talked to a group of students uh, at Boston College last week. I said, you know, it used to be that you could pay your tuition uh, with a summer job, that you got painting houses. Yeah, you yeah. could pay your tuition at the University of Massachusetts. Well, how is that possible? It's because we had a much more progressive tax system, and we invested it in something that everyone recognizes was a very positive social good. Same with housing. Yes. Far Veterans Administration, Farmers Home, many people in New Hampshire have rural homes All over the country. that were financed with 1% 40-year fixed-rate mortgages. Can you imagine really? what kind of house you could buy mm. today with a 40-year 1% fixed-rate mortgage? You could get into the housing market. And that's exactly what a lot of first-time home buyers did, and they were able to get on the wealth-building train. Yeah. That didn't come from nowhere. Those mortgages were subsidized by taxpayer dollars. Everyone agreed and recognized these were, these were important initiatives in building a, a prosperous middle class. Well, we can do the same thing today. It's not, it's not like out of the our imagination. In fact, there are many people today alive who benefited from those public investments. Oh, yeah. And can attest to their power. Um, but today's students, they can't imagine it. It's <laughs> like you're telling them about another world or another planet. Wow, really. And it's so true. And you think about, I mean, just, just picture that, you know, 1% for 40 years. How many people could get into the housing market? How many jobs that would create? How much social mobility there would be? It was done. You know, you're right, and it seems like a different planet these days. 
And uh, again, going back into, into history as to, you know, who we are, who the United States is. The United States is becoming, as the French economist Thomas Piketty warned, a hereditary aristocracy of wealth and power. A hereditary aristocracy of wealth and power. Now, isn't this exactly why America was founded to overthrow a hereditary aristocracy of wealth and power? I mean, democracy certainly, you either have a hereditary aristocracy of wealth and power or you have a democracy. And it's so clear that this is the case. Why have people just accepted it? I mean, we had a revolution to overthrow this. How is it? I mean, and what we're talking about here, and we're going to talk more about some solutions, you know, it hasn't resonated so far. Is it starting to resonate? Why? How is it that, that I mean, it's mystified me how we've come to accept this, again, hereditary aristocracy of wealth and power. What are your thoughts on, you know, how we've gone from that revolution and the absolute founding principles of these currently United States to you know, democracy being basically gone. Yeah. Well, and even recently, uh, former President Jimmy Carter said our electoral system has become an oligarchy. So those are two words that we don't like to apply to ourselves. I think part of what's happened is it's happened over three decades, four decades. It's been sort of a slow death by a thousand cuts process. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we started off as a culture that has a fairly high tolerance for inequality because we believe, hey, it doesn't really matter if if Chuck or Bert are millionaires as long as the rules of the game are fair and everybody has a chance to also become a millionaire um, and that there's social mobility and opportunity. And I think what's changing, and it really started in 2008, is people realize the rules of the game are no longer fair, that they are rigged to benefit large corporations, the wealthy, at the expense of everybody else. And we're starting to wake up to the fact that social mobility is declining. And uh, you said this about the 1950s, we take pride in our mobility, yeah. you know, that the idea that what you do in your life uh, matters. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I, it's kind of like, um, I'm, I'm thinking of this image lately, but it's kind of like, you're in your 50s, and you think you still look like you did in high school. You know, you, you look in the mirror, and you still see your beautiful high school body. But that actually isn't true anymore. <laughs> well, we kind of look at the... We kind of like to still think we're the most socially mobile society. Right. That the American dream, she, you know... That... But here's, here's the reality. If you were not born wealthy in the United States, and you want the American dream... You're better off living in Canada now or Scandinavian Europe yeah. because the, the, they, those countries do a better job investing in early childhood education, uh, early health and nutrition, K-12 through education, right. access to college. Those are more mobile societies now because they make the, the front-end investments that level the playing field that enable hmm. people who are not born wealthy to have the same social mobile opportunities. Yeah, and I think... So we are, we're, we're, we're still stuck in our self-image of from 30 years ago. <laughs> That's interesting, and I, I, don't, I don't look as I did in 
high school. I wear the same. Oh yeah, some of us admit that. <laughs> I wear the same style of clothes, but <laughs> but you know you're right. I mean, one of the things about people believe in American exceptionalism, and that aspect, the social mobility. If you work hard, you play by the rules. You can make it here. You can become wealthy too. That aspect of American exceptionalism is gone. It's just in fact gone it is simply not there as as we point out and that's something really different and i fear the one uh, place where there is american exceptionalism is in uh, militarism i mean you talk about investing for the common good we take hundreds of billions of dollars pour it into you know weapon systems that don't do anything that are completely obsolete and you know that's sucking away a great deal of our commonwealth as well I mean, this is my little soapbox here. I'm kind of an FDR advocate in terms of uh, I think we ought to invest in things that actually build the economy. Like, as you said, you know, if there's a 1% interest rate for 40 years for people to buy houses, that's going to create real jobs, a real economy. Uh, If you just tuned in, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive, I'm Bert Cohen here. Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies, work with a lot of... uh, prominent wealthy individuals uh, to uh, have more fair taxes. I mean, a lot of wealthy people realize that it's just not fair and that, I mean, for their interests, if we want to have a strong economy here, you know, we, we really do. I mean, even even the wealthiest people, many of them, not all of them, care about a, a strong economy. And my sense is that, that a lot of this extreme shift uh, has it, it goes back to Ronald Reagan. Maybe before that, I don't really know. But as, as you point out in your report, Chuck, says America's wealthiest 0.1%, the top 1,000th of a population, an estimated 115,000 households have a net worth starting at $20 million. They own as much wealth as the bottom 90%. This group's, group owns more than 20% of U.S. household wealth, up from 7%. In the 1970s. So my question now is from 7% of, of the wealth to 20% of the wealth in a relatively short period of time, that's pretty staggering. How did that happen so quickly that the top 1,000th of, of our population owns 20% of the wealth when it used to be 7% in the 70s, not too long ago? Well, part of it is, um, you know, the rules underlying the economy. So tax policy is one, but trade policy rules about how easy it is to join a union to advocate for, you know, collect to bargain for wages. Real wages have been stagnant for 30 years. Mm. Um, thanks to the globalization of the economy, global trade policies, anti-labor policies, those have all kept wages down. And on the other end of the equation, if you own a lot of wealth, the rules are very, very good to you. I mean, there's been an incredible expansion of assets, creating assets at the top end. That's where it's interesting, you know, some of our patriotic millionaires who are involved in obviously both starting companies and amassing wealth will personally be able to say, well, you know, I saw my assets double. I was working hard, but how does that, how did that happen? You know, um, and it's a function of how the rules of the economy have changed from 30 years ago. So, you know, it, 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 I mean, the good news is it wasn't sort of a natural disaster or a weather event that caused it. It was human-created public policies that can totally be reversed. 
I mean, we could reverse this within a decade, and you know, through kind of a program of taxation and investment. I think we have to address the climate crisis. So one of the things that's different about, you know, we're we're not going to go do the New Deal 2.0 playbook entirely because that was based on a certain amount of extraction and burning and dumping of carbon. True. We'll have to figure out how to do it in a way. But we know we can make huge investments in retrofitting our infrastructure, our buildings, and reducing our carbon footprint that creates all kinds of great jobs and livelihoods for people. Yeah. Um, so but that, we could do. that's not, I'm guessing, those jobs, those uh, you know, environmentally sustainable jobs that we need to fit now, rather than, you're right, some of the, a lot of the jobs in the New Deal uh, were not exactly environmentally benign. Um, so that, those jobs aren't necessarily going to come exclusively from the profit motive, you know, capitalism itself, you know, left unfettered, is not, I don't think, going to create those jobs, even though we need it for the common wealth. And some people might call that socialism, I suppose. What, what's your reaction to that? I mean, we need, you know, look, if somehow, forgetting where the money came from, if there were a lot of jobs building you know, uh, solar grids, uh, you know, retrofitting old buildings, you know, this stuff. That would create an awful lot of jobs. Do you see support for that starting to grow? Are people recognizing how essential that the old, the, the idea from our founders of something called the common good? I mean, it seems to have, we've strayed very far from that, but is that starting to take hold? And I, I assume it would have to be some form of the government that would uh, stimulate that. This, you know, the, the, the profit motive in and of itself is not going to be stimulus enough for that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I see the common good emerging all around. It's very, sometimes it's at the very local level where municipalities and cities are helping drive that through public investment, but also encouraging, you know, private sector actors, local companies, uh, cooperatives we have in my neighborhood I live in Boston. We have a, 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 a restaurant waste management company that's a worker-owned cooperative, picks up all the restaurant waste, including cooking oils, recycles those oils, composts the food waste, and you know makes as much reuse of, of materials to take them out of the waste stream. Mm. What's not to love about this? I mean, yeah, really. They're, they're, they're the private sector, but they happen to be worker-owned so that uh-huh. the wealth of that company is more broadly shared. Um, so those are the kinds of things. This, we're, we're in a transition to a new economy yes, we are. that should that we hope will be much more equitable and and that encourages uh, local production and consumption. And you know, where there's there's cooperatively owned or, or or local businesses that are doing a lot of the retrofitting of housing and buildings and schools and mm-hmm. preparing us to live in a much more you know sort of post fossil fuel era. Uh, there's a true that, that's both the common good and the common wealth at work there. True, and I actually get the sense that, you know, not the Republican funders, but people who, many people who vote Republican like that stuff too. They like keeping it local. They like local solutions. And to me, that's kind of exciting that there's that uh, bipartisan support for, for such things. And we talk about, you know, a lack of, of social cohesion. I wonder, 
you know, and, and and the things that could really build jobs, and one of the great things about the New Deal was that it got neighbors together helping neighbors. And so, you know, your uh, health and welfare mattered to me because we were working on the same project together. That That's a great thing there. And I, I, I wonder if it might have been and still be in the financial interest, the strictly financial interests of the extremely wealthy, to to whittle away at social cohesion and keep people feeling isolated and powerless, because I think a lot of people do feel isolated and powerless now. We've given up on that. And I just get the sense that that some of the extremely wealthy people might kind of like it that way, that there's no sense of, of uh, community. Your thoughts? Well, I guess I, I, it's true that I think maybe people profit from a system where people are disconnected and alienated. But what I'm finding it's quite interesting is I, I think that there are, there's a growing number of people waking up to the fact that the whole system is undermining the quality of life for everybody, including people at the top, who also are disconnected from other human beings and want to be part mm. of vibrant communities. That's where I think mm. you're right. At the local level, there's kind of like less ideology, less rigidity. People are just saying, let's get together. And that's where you see people who have wealth actually bringing their wealth home. You know, they're sort of taking, it's, it's returning from exile. It's been, their wealth has been floating around the planet, chasing high, high risk returns. And now they're saying, you know what, I want to invest in a local mm. business. I want to invest in the new emergent economy around renewable energy. Mm -hmm. I want to support and lend to cooperatives, and I don't need to have catastrophic rates of return. <laughs> I'm going to put my money in the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund because mm -hmm. I can see how that's going to improve my community. Yeah. So I, I see, you know, a little bit of revival. It's not, you know, there's obviously a segment of very wealthy people who are happy to keep rigging the rules to get more wealth, but well, people are just saying, look, we're all in this together, you know, particularly for ecological reasons. We just can't continue down the, the path we're on. The, the idea that we're going to live apart is illusory. We have <laughs> one little planet here. As far as we know, no one has gotten, found another planet that the wealthy can jet off to. Right. So they're stuck with us, the rest of us, and, and it's really in everybody's interest. And I think what we're seeing more and more of is businesses caring more about being a good community citizen. They want to be seen as a good community citizen. It's their, in their interest to do so. I think that's nothing but a good thing. They, you know, at the very least, it's good public relations for them to be investing locally. And talking about uh, solutions here, um, in the report says, quote, we argue that strategies to, quote, raise the floor and level the playing field will be insufficient to reduce the distorting effects of concentrated wealth. Why are these uh, strategies to raise the floor and level the playing field insufficient? Well, they're in, they're very important, but alone, if, you know, for instance, people say, well, oh, income inequality, let's raise the minimum wage and we'll solve the problem. Uh, or campaign finance reform, let's, let's uh, reduce the impact of, wealthy donors on the democracy. So we run around and put together various reforms in that place. But as long as wealth continues to concentrate at the way it is, like you quoted Thomas Piketty, as long as wealth is compounding at the top, 
it's going to keep distorting the system. We, we, it will undermine efforts to raise the floor or level the playing field. Um, and that's why, you know, kind of like the Thomas Piketty, the French economist says, we have to intervene in that cycle of concentrating wealth. We have to sort of slow and reverse the concentration of wealth and power at the top. And so that leads you to the, the sort of less politically popular policies of we, we should tax incomes over millions of dollars at higher levels. Mm-hmm. We probably should look at some kind of net worth or wealth tax, mm-hmm. maybe just on billionaires. You know, there's 545 billionaires in the United States. What if, you know, wealth over a certain, over a billion dollars was taxed on an incremental basis? Um you know, one percent tax on wealth over a billion dollars would generate a lot of wealth, a lot of income. So, we have to sort of have the the difficult discussion of what do we do about that nine, you know, the, the three trillion dollar gorilla at the very top. What do we do about that? Mm. Um, well, it's just going to keep sitting there, uh, pulling, you know, updrafting wealth to the top, no okay. matter what we do. Yeah, we got to do something about that. And I can imagine some people saying, what, have a direct tax on wealth? You know, even if it's not, I mean, there's one thing, you know, say somebody makes uh, $12 million a year and say just arbitrarily that any uh, income, say, above $5 million a year is taxed at a, at a much higher rate. I can imagine some people getting up in arms. What? The American dream. If you made the money, you should be able to keep the money. Wouldn't there be a lot of resistance to that? Or do you, Chuck Collins, are you starting to see some change in, in resistance to to that idea of, of direct tax on wealth itself? Well, at different points in our history, we've done that. I mean, we do have property taxes, which is a tax that mirrors the the amount oh, that's a good point. of assets and property that people have. Right. Uh, to say, okay, there's a fina- what about a financial net worth tax, you know? You have five, you know, fifty million dollars of financial wealth, and you pay, uh, you know, one percent of tax on that on an annual basis. That's you know, some states actually do that. You know, hmm. Florida has a intangibles tax, which is somewhat of a tax on financial wealth. So hmm. it's not totally out of our universe. I mean, the argument that you, that you hear, as you say, is you know, this is my money. I don't right. want to do. You know, I don't have any responsibility. I mean, to that, I think we just have to say, you know, where would we be without the, you know, the system of public investments, the fertile ground that we've built together, whether it's around public infrastructure or investments in research or, you know, the, the property rights protection remedies that we have. You know, there's, there's a, a whole bunch of public investments that it basically means that the United States, has, together, we've created a very fertile ground for wealth and opportunity and yeah. the, the, the social contract is you know you've done very well you've got millions of dollars you you yes you can give to charity right but you also pay your taxes so that the same kinds of public investments will be there for the next generation and unfortunately i think what i see is the organized segment of the wealthy class is pulling up the ladder they're mm-hmm. like hey we got a debt-free education but we're going to make the rest of these young people go into hmm. debt servitude. Hmm. That's kind of like uh, generational selfishness, in my view. Yeah, yeah. If you just tuned in, Keeping Democracy Live, it's a 
group effort here, folks. Bert Cohen here, our guest today, Chuck Collins, uh, author of, uh, well, that, that new report, the uh, Forbes 400 and the rest of us and what we can do about that. And frankly, I kind of wish there was some kind of a, a psychiatric study of the extremely wealthy who are just in an absolute panic and frenzy. They have to get more, much, much more. That's got to be a treatable disease, I would think. <laughs> but I, I don't know. But in the meantime, you know, that tax on, on wealth, you know, once people get over a certain amount, you know, you're still going to have tons of money, more than you know what to do with, that can fund generations to come. It, it's not unreasonable. I think my guess is most politicians would be really afraid to touch anything like that. But there are things that they can touch. And of course, Bernie Sanders is quite the exception to this. This is the essence of his campaign. And what I find uh, very encouraging is that he's been saying the same thing, Chuck, as you know, for like 30, 40 years. And now people are getting it. He was right then. One of the uh, solutions in this report, and I want to you know, try to go through with them, is, is to close what it calls the wealth escape routes. Now, that sounds like it might be popular. What, what, what does that mean? What does closing the wealth escape routes look like? Well, we have this problem, which is um, even if you and I embark on the program we talked about of you know progressive taxation, um, huge numbers of of um, huge amounts of wealth are now moving offshore into what you could call offshore tax havens or secrecy jurisdictions like Swiss bank accounts or the Cayman Islands or uh, you know corporate subsidiaries in Luxembourg. You know these are ways in which the billionaires are moving their money around the planet and avoiding accountability and taxation. Uh, and closer to home, there's a whole bunch of trust mechanisms. Uh, I just call them the billionaire loopholes, but there's a, a, a bunch of complicated trusts, but they're the ways in which, again, people use uh, a legal trust to move money around, pass it on to heirs and grandchildren without any kind of oversight or, or taxation. So we know... Now estimates are, you know, seven to ten uh, trillion dollars globally is hidden in offshore tax havens. My uh, we estimate that about eight percent of the wealth of the very, very wealthy is in these hidden offshore jurisdictions. Uh, we estimate it's about a, a trillion and a half dollars of U.S. wealthy money, money by you know owned by wealthy individuals. So. One thing we see in our report is all of our statistics are, we think, the tip of the iceberg, that, that in fact, wealth is much more concentrated because of all these hidden wealth escapes. So uh, the good news is we can, we can fix those. The United States is a huge, powerful economic actor. We can enter into treaties with all these countries and say, you know, you want to do business with the United States, you have to uh, have transparency reporting. You can't have uh, accounts for the sole purpose of uh, tax avoidance. Same thing on the loopholes. We can just close those loopholes, uh, make them uh, unacceptable uh, for the purposes of just tax dodging. <clears throat> so it's just about the political will. But those are very important things to do if we're going to fix the overall system. Interesting. There is a lot to do, and I urge people to take a look at, uh, at the report. How can they get it uh, online? Actually, an easy way to do is to go to our um, website, which is inequality.org. And that is our portal for data and commentary and, and information. And uh, you'll see right there on the homepage the, the Billionaire Bonanza Report. 
uh, or if you Google billionaire bonanza, you'll find oh, the support sure. and some of the amazing uh, global news coverage about it. Yeah, people have been making uh, very cool infographics and pictures uh, reflecting the report. NBC Nightly News did a, like a music video to our data, which I was very impressed by. So oh, my goodness. you'll find that if you if you look for billionaire bonanza and the Institute for Policy Studies. One thing I, I, I wanted to get to before we close here, we've got just a few minutes left. You write about how uh, CEO pay contributes to climate change. Could you explain that one? Well, our executive compensation system encourages short-term actions for immediate gain. Right. That's the, that's the nature of our compensation system. So CEOs are, are kind of encouraged to take a very, very short-term horizon, short-term outlook. Well, that also has plays out in the area of the large fossil fuel companies. Um, they all are looking at this month's return, short-term returns, so they're not thinking about long-term investments that will make their company more profitable in the post-fossil fuel era. They're thinking about taking the money and run. Yeah. So, unfortunately, we need those fossil fuel industries, big oil, big gas, big coal, to look at their long-term viability and and they themselves can transition toward other types of energy, move into other sectors. Yeah, that could still because be the reality is, eighty percent of their assets we cannot extract and burn them right. if we want to maintain a habitable planet. Yeah, the long-range view or the intermediate-term view, and uh, CEO pay keeps them just kind of locked into the short-term view. And they can still make a profit. My goodness, of course they can in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and oh, in the long term, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Right? They could be, you know, a lot of businesses that take longer view say, look, how do we, how are we going to be profitable 20 years from now? Right. Uh, they would be changing their business model. Yes. And that's, that's in their personal interest, you know. They just have to make a change. Now, I wonder, there must be, is there legislation currently that's been proposed that uh, you think people might want to help uh, support? You know, one thing that I encourage people to support is something called the Responsible Estate Tax Act. Uh, and again, if you go to inequality.org and look at our action area, you'll see some of the legislative proposals uh-huh. reforming CEO pay, um, raising the minimum wage, uh, uh, progressive estate taxation. Those are some of the policies that are currently, you know, on the table. And then I think you can also, there's, there's sort of equivalence at the state and local level, too. And I hate to ask this, but I will. What happens if we don't act? Left, left without intervening, we will just continue to move toward a, a more polarized society, which I think will, will not be good for anybody. Um, you know, if, you've, if people have traveled in, in Honduras or Brazil, they know that there's a very small wealthy elite that lives behind walls and has bodyguards and drives their bulletproof Mercedes-Benz from their yeah. walled, gated residence to the, you know, the shopping area, you know, that. And then outside of that, our, is it, our middle class will continue to shrink to, to becoming, you know, kind of like a, a insecure, um, itinerant, you know, work, workforce. So, you know, it's not a pretty picture. We basically left unchecked. That's essentially where we're going. And that's exactly what our founders revolted against, just exactly. I mean, here we are just uh, recreating 
the uh, what was it uh, that Piketty said? Let me see if I can find that here. Uh, the uh, uh, hereditary aristocracy of wealth and power. That's what the American Revolution, the War of Independence was about, and yet here we are. So people, I think, there's starting to be a change. The fact that Bernie Sanders is doing so well uh, and people are connecting, Democrats, Independent, Republicans, uh, it's, I, I get some sense of optimism. It's, it's, it's kind of scary, but I'm, I'm sensing a shift. And thank you so much for the work you do, Chuck. It really helps. It really is making a difference. Chuck Collins, again, uh, what website would you like to point people to? People should check out inequality.org, and uh, you can sign up. We have a little monthly newsletter, uh, and uh, like us on Facebook there, and you'll learn more. Thank you so much. Learn and act. We can make a change. We are not powerless. Thank you again, Chuck Collins, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bert, for the conversation. They want it now. 